Greetings, Parish Orphans and Retrogrades. Today, I come to you with a different sort of Rules for Retrogrades episode, a bibliographical one. Today's show is called Catholicism versus Feminism, just the sources. Roman Catholicism squares itself to feminism in every one of its form, the first wave, the second wave, third, and fourth wave. And I told this story quite thoroughly, I'd say, in this book, The Case for Patriarchy. A few months later, my wife told the story under different auspices, but same tale, in this book called Ask Your Husband. These two books together prove definitively that Catholicism squares itself to feminism. Now, I understand that folks these days, for various reasons, are less readers than they were in the past. Lots of reasons. Cost, time, changing, multimedia, allure. I mean, there wasn't any such thing as multimedia even 50 years ago. Nowadays, reading is the most archaic form of medium. So, what I've done for you today in a bibliographical show that I'm about to do is I have prepared for you, together with my wife Stephanie, a bibliography complete to our two books, The Case for Patriarchy and Ask Your Husband. And we've called it Catholicism versus Feminism, Just the Sources. I'm going to read that to you now. After I read you scripture by scripture, papal quote by papal quote, patristic by patristic, scholastic by scholastic, you will be left to, quote, be the judge as to whether or not there can be any such thing as a Catholic feminism or a Christian feminism. It's such a slaughterhouse, the case. It's such a shellacking or a beatdown. There's really no case left at all for the so-called Christian feminists. And those, which we're going to discuss in, in two days' time, I'm going to introduce to you a young Catholic convert, a lifelong conservative who is a young Catholic married at this point, who found that feminism had stolen into even her conservatism, she's a lifelong conservative, and into Christianity, namely her newly embraced Catholicism. And she finds it in the form of propaganda that's pushed by the church, mainly through a conspiracy of silence of these sources together with a perversion of one of them. So without further ado, what I'm going to do for you today is to read through Catholicism versus feminism. Do we have it on the screen, Stevi? And as I read, I have a few little amendments to what will be on the screen. We're just going to go through Scripture, and you will see Catholicism is squared against feminism. As I read, you will see Pope by Pope, patristic by patristic, and scholastic by scholastic. There is no such case as feminism from within the church. Okay, so let's begin now. We'll start with the only 
quote that you've probably ever heard addressed and it's going to be readdressed by me several times by simply citing the correct scriptural sources. I start today with 18 scriptures and you won't, you'll see. Ephesians 5 is really one of the least important ones for making the case that there is no Christian feminism. But first off, we'll start with Ephesians 5, that quote that they will shamefacedly usually not read or bracket at Mass when it's the reading once every two years. Ephesians 5, verse 22 to 24. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. That's what we have on the screen there. That's verse 23. Verse 24 is this. As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, the popes will add the gloss that wives have to submit themselves to their husbands in everything, except in grave sin. Okay? So a husband cannot rightly make his wife contracept or stop going to church or something like that, okay? So that's the only gloss that the popes have added on this scripture from St. Paul. I will add this much. The case here, even by itself, that wives must submit to husbands is indisputable. How do I know? Because the church's timeless ecclesiology and Christology, ecclesiology is teachings about the church herself, and Christology about her bridegroom himself, Jesus, liken Jesus to husbands and the bride, the church, to women, wives, brides. Husband is head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. The only way that the Catholic leftists have made any kind of daylight here for feminism has been to make some linguistic play off of the fact that St. Paul says that even the wives, he's been perfectly clear, have to submit themselves to their husbands in everything. To be subject to their husbands in everything. To submit to and to be subject to are literally identical. Well, in this analogical way, husbands must submit their lives in defense for their, hus- uh, for their wives, which is the very next verse. So in that sense, husbands might have to submit his life to a band of robbers that attacks him and his wife on the high road. Yes, there's a kind of submission there, but is a husband subject to, meaning prostrate before the dominion of his wife? No, that's one way there's no such thing as mutual subjection. There's no such thing as reciprocal submission either. The wife has to submit to the husband in all things. The husband does not have to submit to her in anything. But in this analogous way, he submits his life in defense of hers should the situation arise. That's the furthest, as weak of a case as Christian feminism is, starting with our first scripture out of 18. That's the furthest that Christian feminism gets. Now, second scriptural verse, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3 to 7. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, 
And the head of Christ is God. Now, listen to the next line. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well shave her hair off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Woman is the glory of man, man is the glory of God. Therefore, man is the head of woman as God is the head of man. You see the hierarchy? And this is even related to the timeless sacramental practice of veiling. What is this? Headship. It is a sin for a man to cover his head. It is a shame for a man to cover his head because he's covering up his headship, which is equal to the original sin. What Adam did in the garden, he covered up his headship by letting his wife lead him. The original sin. We're going to get to lots of that. But you see, again, males and females in marriage are related to another doctrine or discipline of the church, just like in Ephesians 5. Veiling. Women must veil because they're not their own head. Their head, another member of the body, is their husband. It is a sin for a man to veil because he's covering his headship, which is equal to the original sin. So this has much to do with male leadership in general. Now, we get to the third scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. We're going to get to the verses after this in a second. But first, let's just take this verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Submission is... In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, like the first female virtue. I know this is very different from what you folks are hearing out there, but that's because this is the third rail. My wife and I bothered to touch it. It's very clear. I'm going to keep going. It's going to get much more clear. But I'm doing this largely for some friends in a text group that were like, I don't know what you're talking about. All I've heard is what you're claiming, Tim, is the propaganda convince me. I'm like, well, I have this thing ready to go, this Catholicism versus feminism thing, the bibliography. So you guys can hit me up by email. I'll get you a PDF of this and you can have it handy, but we're going to run through it right now. So this started close to home with some friends on a text group. Fourth scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. So a whole different chapter in St. Paul's letter to Timothy. Let deacons be the husbands of their wives, ruling their children and their, their own houses as well. This is important because it establishes the hierarchy. Husbands are the heads of the household. They're in charge of everything, subject to no one in the household. Next come wives, who are the lieutenants, who the husbands often, as they're gone during the day, will leave in charge. It was very common. But they're clearly second in charge. And then the kids. The husbands are in charge of, they're ruled. St. Paul uses the term ruled. They rule their children and their houses as well. Fifth scripture. See, you thought it was just that one in, in Ephesians 5, if you knew about that at all. Fifth scripture. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. What are women allowed to teach? 
St. Paul is going to clarify. All of these are writings in the New Testament so far. Teach, he's writing to the, to the women, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live and to teach what is good. Ah, the Christian feminist might say. So women can teach. So women can be teachers. Nope. He goes on. Then the women can urge the younger women, the only ones they're allowed to teach, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home. See how St. Paul is assuming that women will be home all day, every day. I mean, not, not that they can't go out to, to run an errand or two, but they, their place is the domicile. To be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands. Subject, submissive to the rule of their husbands, so that none will malign the word of God. Once again, wives being subject to husbands is conceptually adjacent to the notion of the word of God being listened to within Christendom. If all the households have wives that listen to their husbands, then the word of God will be heard. He didn't know about a bunch of these because it's a conspiracy of silence. The church is embarrassed by her own teachings for the last 60 years, since around the Second Vatican Council. And she won't teach this, but it's still there on the books. Sixth scripture, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is a real doozy here. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives. This is St. Paul telling Christian wives what to do to win over their husbands who are in charge of them to Christianity if the husbands aren't Christians. Just show them the way the boomers say to evangelize, which is wrong in, in the case of evangelizing. Just use action, no words, because wives aren't allowed to teach their husbands. Your beauty, St. Paul says, should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should come, it should be that from your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So even in the imparting of Christianity, wives are not supposed to be teaching their husbands. Now their husbands can note passively from the beautiful spirit of Christian wives from their behavior. For this is the way that the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, even if they had bad husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. This means even in the extreme case that a faithful Christian wife has a husband who's a pagan, just show them with your behaviors. Because St. Paul knows no man is going to be barked at by his wife and listen to it. Because it's unholy. That's a subversion of nature. Good things can't come from bad things. You're not going to get a conversion from a wife acting like the priest of the household. You might get a conversion from a man passively noting the outside world, which includes his wife's, his Christian wife's holy behavior. Scripture 7. You didn't know all these scriptures existed, right? And the liars who teach something, the propagandists, I should say, who teach something called mutual submission, they treat all these other scriptural passages like they don't exist. They're right there in the New Testament. 
And just like Ephesians 5, this puts it beyond any doubt. Number seven, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In case there is any doubt. Next, we come back to Ephesians chapter 5, but this is verse 33, not far from that, that first one that everyone talks about. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is important. Protestants sermonize beautifully on this. Why does the husband love his wife tenderly? Because he's in charge. It's like saying, love your, love your kids. You have utter reign over the household. Don't be a tyrant. Don't be a jerk. Be soft with them. Love them tenderly. You're not supposed to be insecure in your total rule over your household. You're supposed to be sure of it. Wives, on the other hand, are, are taught, because it's already presumed that they're below the husband, it's already presumed they love the husband. Respect your husband. See how that works? There are beautiful Protestant sermons I've heard on, on Ephesians 5, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 33. The, it's really strong proof when you talk about why men would be instructed to love their wives and, and wives to respect their husbands. But I'm not going to go through it right now. It's pretty evident since I'm going through all the other ones. Now, here's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 27, after the famous verses. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This one gets deeply theological. The point is, without getting into all that theology, that gets more interpretive. The point is, the easy part of this passage is that husbands, again, are instructed, repeated, to love their wives, It's repeated just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Wives are presumed to be in the position of the church who's sanctified by Christ, who's likened to the husband. So the the theology gets more difficult, but the predicate facts on which the theology is based, that's really clear. And that can't be touched by that one line that propagandists in the mainstream church seek to obscure. Uh, verse 21 in Ephesians 5. Mutual submission. See, men and women are equal. No. I mean, they are in dignity in God's eyes. They both have an intellect and a will made after the image and likeness of God, but they're not equal in power at all. And it couldn't be any more clear. Instance number 10, 1 Peter 3, verse 7. 10 of these. You probably knew one or two of them at most. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. See, the weaker partners, this doesn't just mean physical strength. They are less mighty in all sorts of ways. Spiritually, the husband's the priest. Priests are more mighty spiritually. Different mind, a mind for leadership men have a mind for following wives have. And of course, bodily. Coffee tasted weird. We depart from, we depart from the New Testament for just a second to go into the book of Sirach. The feminists are not going to be happy 
This is Sirach chapter 25, verses 16 to 25. Listen to how specifically proto-feminism, or whatever existed three to 4,000 years ago, is addressed in the book of Sirach. I would sooner keep a house with a lion or a dragon than keep house with a spiteful wife. This is Old Testament, so still inerrant. It's funny. Oh, I love that one. A, wo- a woman's spite changes her appearance and makes her face as grim as a bear's. Burn. When her husband goes out to dinner with his neighbors, he cannot help heaving bitter sighs as if he has a bad wife. <laughs> it's so specific. It's so specific. And every husband has a, a good wife knows this is how you feel even on a rare bad day because you are one flesh, right? You're one flesh and wives are the heart of the home. They're the cheer of the home. Hell hath no fury, right? Like a scorned woman. Well, we're, we're getting, really, getting really specific now. No spite can approach the spite of a woman. May a sinner's lot be hers. <laughs> like the climbing of a sandy hill for elderly feet, such is a garrulous wife for a quiet husband. That's a wife who talks too much. See, the, the beauty of silence? The best women in Scripture are the silent ones. Do not be taken in by a woman's beauty. Never lose your head over a woman. Bad temper, insolence, and shame hold sway where the wife supports the husband. See how female work begins to be insinuated even 3,000 years ago in the Old Testament? Bad temper, insolence, and shame hold sway where the wife supports the husband. Inerrant scripture. Low spirits, gloomy face, stricken heart. Such is a spiteful wife. Wives, it's a high standard for cheerfulness. You shouldn't have to go work. If you go and work, you're going to be a little grumpy at the end of the day. This is part of the reason. God's design is you be the heart of the home, beautify, be cheery, be there to help your husbands as they get home from a long work day. Because a spiteful wife causes low spirits, gloomy face, stricken heart. Even a little bit grumpy. We're made very differently. Your job is to to keep as cheerful as possible. Slack hands and sagging knees. Such is the wife who does not make her husband happy. Sin began with a woman, and thanks to her, we all must die. So Eve sinned first. All the patristics are clear about this. It's because she is not made to be doing business with the outside world. Economically, transactionally, uh, husbands, for safety's sakes, you should even be the one to answer the door of your homes. Does this sound old-fashioned? Yes, it does. But sin began with a woman because she was allowed to treat with a serpent. Thanks to her, we all must die. This is scripture. Do not let water find a leak, nor a spiteful woman give free rein to her tongue. Okay? I mean, that is like the best thing I've ever read. Yeah. This is the <laughs> destruction of feminism. That's Before... the most thorough treatment I've ever heard. And that's in the Old Testament. Okay, back to St. Paul, who also hands down an ass whooping to feminism. Back to <laughs> Timothy. Now, this is 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14. I. Will, therefore, that the younger women marry, this channel we tell young people to get married, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So again, silence and submission is the way. Silence and submission is the way. Does St. Paul say, I will, therefore, that the younger women get a job or enter political office or act like transsexuals and act like men in the public sphere. No, women are in the private sphere where they 
keep things going, where they keep men energized, where they are the handmaidens. Marry, bear children, guide the house, make it beautiful, is what I read when he says guide the house. Give not occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Scripture 13. Oh, this one comes from Proverbs. I forgot we had a second Old Testament passage. Proverbs 31, verse 27. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. So women should not be at home, not eating bonbons on the couch, the way the liberals started shaming and propagandizing stay-at-home moms, stay-at-home wives, we should say, even before they have kids. But be, be fruitful. Keep a garden. Keep a journal. Read so you have something to talk about or even, you know, happily enlighten your husband at the dinner table. Uh, garden, get a hobby, right? Beautify the home, take up interior decoration, take a nap. There's so much to do. Even taking a nap is productive. There's so much to do during the day. Get into art, paint watercolors, paint your husband a, a beautiful portrait. There's so much fun stuff to do. All over TikTok are young women saying, I have such a better life than all my friends because I get up, I make my husband lunch, I go exercise. That's a big part of marital life for women. Exercise. Part of marital happiness. Don't let it slip from your life, young wives. Exercise, get lunch, maybe go visit your husband for lunch, come home, take a nap. One TikTok chick said she exercises a second time every day. Good for her. That's good. Your job is to make men happy. Your, wife, your husband happy, not, not any other men. Scripture 14, 1 Timothy chapter 2, this is 11 to 15. Now, I read you 11 before, but I'm going to give you the rest. This is really 12 to 15. 11 is, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. This is inerrant scripture, friends. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. This is inerrant scripture talking about the Old Testament. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Women will not be saved by stealing commandeering the job of the man, going out and working. Women will be saved through childbearing. It's presumed through, you know, holy or uh, through, you know, becoming a sister or a nun. Now, folks were asking about general male-female relations in my group chat, and that's why I'm addressing it here. What does this have to do with Adam and Eve? One guy asked me, I said, well, it was Eve that sinned first when she's put into a leadership position. Go treat with the serpent. That's the man's job. Women aren't... And you're going to throw exceptions. Oh, my wife's answered the door before and all hell didn't break loose. But women aren't generally capable of being men just as men aren't generally capable of being women. I know you're not hearing this stuff elsewhere, but the point is it's all over St. Paul. It's all over Scripture. All the first wave feminists from the middle 1800s to the middle 1900s, who are more honest than second wave feminists and then third wave feminists who entered the church, they said St. Paul is the enemy. Because this is like almost all of his epistles address men and women. Generally speaking, men need to lead the households. Generally speaking, women need not to. That's what this has to do with Adam and Eve. 15th scripture, 1 Corinthians 14 
Verse 34 to 35, women should remain silent in the churches. Does this sound like your Novus Ordo church? No. It's women yap, 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 yap. They're all over the place. They're all over the place. They're behind the scenes in the priests here. They're running the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, which is where you get the title of this one from, Ask Your Husband. (laughs) And people thought Steph was just trolling them with this title, Ask Your Husband. You have a question? Go ask your husband. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. I know you might be thinking, my gosh, my gosh, what has happened here? How do I not know any of this? This is basic, inerrant scriptural teaching. I'm going to get to the popes on this. We haven't even gotten to the popes yet. How, how can I have this religion that teaches the most fundamental aspect of society, how, how husbands and wives relate to each other, the heart of the home? Remember, the home is called the single cell of society, the family. We've been misled by satanic propaganda. We're going to talk about this in the very next show. Satanic propaganda that influences us all 500 times more than homo pedo transsexual propaganda. Feminist propaganda affects all of us. All of us have a family, and all of us who were raised, like I was raised in the 80s and 90s, anything after the 70s, we were all raised, at least in one way or another, in feminist households. Even if your parents were right-wingers. I guarantee you this affected you. Your dad, 499 out of 500 of you did not reign over the home in the way that St. Paul said to. If you're the one out of 500, good for you and good for your dad. Oh, a third Old Testament scripture. I forgot about this. There's a fourth one that follows it right away. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Wow. Now, some more nuanced feminists, who at least admit that husbands rule over wives, will try to say, well, this is only because of concupiscence. No, because, as you'll see in the next section from Genesis, chapter 2, verse 22 to 23, Even before the fall of Adam and Eve, which caused concupiscence, Adam was over Eve. And the rib, this is number 17, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is how bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, as we get to the popes, the patristics, and the scholastics, what you're going to see is lots of references back to these two quotes in Genesis and lots of references back to these Pauline epistles. Here's the last Pauline epistle, Romans chapter 7, verse 2. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. This carried a lot of weight In the lawfare and in the culture of St. Paul's day, the feminists try to say that all of these quotes are just bound up in the lawfare, and that's why the culture follows patriarchy, patriarchally. 
But this is one example where St. Paul is, the reason we included it is because St. Paul is saying, here's the formal relationship between culture and lawfare, because it was guided in Jewish culture by the actual Pentateuch law. He bothers to stipulate here. This is the case, and it probably holds for us as well. But he's not saying this with all these other passages anyway. Even though I think, I think uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 2 holds universally for all Christians the way the rest of these do. Note how he stipulates. Well, here we're dealing with the, the governance of the Pentateuch and the, the Jewish law on households. He doesn't say that with this. And I forgot, we added two more scriptures. 19, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. But if any man provide not for his own and especially for those of his own house, he had denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Men can't be slouches. They have to provide for their families. But this proves the point to the feminists that there is no provision made for female work. It's outlawed by the book of Sirach. It's going to basically be outlawed by the Roman catechism. And six, five or six popes in the 20th century will acknowledge this should be a one-income household by males. Finally, scripture number 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1-4. through 4. Now, connecting the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, that is, sex, and likewise, the wife to her husband. This is one way in St. Paul's writings in inerrant scripture that there is egalitarianism between husband and wife, conjugal debt. He specifically says that unlike the other aspects of the, the political economy of the household, which are non-egalitarian, the wife owes obedience and submission to her husband. He does not owe it to her. He owes her protection. Um, this is reciprocal. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have the authority over her own body. That sounds typical. Now the wife doesn't have authority over much. But the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body conjugally, but the wife does. So the conjugal debt, it is a mortal sin to without grave reason say no to your spouse for sex. That's how serious this is. St. Paul will explain it in the next verse. But this is not something that only binds women. When Steph included this chapter in her book, it, uh, it, it was like hitting a beehive. But this is ironic because this is the only place of egalitarianism in the New Testament, in St. Paul. Actually, husbands can't say no either. Neither spouse is allowed but for a grave cause to deny sex to their spouse. It's a very big deal. You're not taught this, even though it's egalitarianism. That's because uh, population control goons and Freemasons run the world, and they don't want marital sex happening frequently. That would be a lot of people. Do not deprive one another, St. Paul says, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So you should be having sex all the time, spouses, except just to go pray for a little bit. But then, St. Paul writes, come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Infidelity runs low where marital sex runs high. 20 scriptures from 
the Bible, four from Old Testament, 16 from New Testament. I think all 16 are St. Paul. They're all inerrant. And only one of them is egalitarian, the conjugal debt. Only one of them are husbands bound in the same way that wives are, the conjugal debt. All the other ones, it is crystal clear. There's no such thing as mutual submission. That is a lie. I'm now going to read to you the Pope's versus feminism, starting with Pope John Paul II in Laborum Exorcins. The feminists think that Pope John Paul II teaches that feminism is good. He, he did dabble in this, but his hardcore foundational teachings rebuke feminism, even though he wanted to be friends with everyone. It's a big problem with this pontificate. He wanted to satisfy all sides. And um, I'll start with the popes versus feminism and then mostly move back to Pope Leo XIII as uh, a chronological uh, headstone. So mark this in your daybook, folks, that Pope John Paul II will say that having to abandon domestic tasks for wife in order to take up paid work is wrong. Okay? So put this in your calendars, put it in your daybook, write it on a napkin, stick it in your memory. This is from Laborum Exorcins. It will redound to the credit of society to make it possible for a mother to devote herself to taking care of her children and educating them in accordance with their needs, which vary with age. Having to abandon these tasks in order to take up paid work outside the home is wrong from the point of view of the good of society and of the family when it contradicts or hinders these primary goals of the mission of a mother. I rest my case, right? The only counterpoint to all of that damning, feminism damning scripture I just read you that the feminists will throw at you is St. Paul's letter to women. But in a higher magisterial document, Laborum Exorcins, he just said, having to abandon domestic tasks to take up paid work outside the home is wrong. Got it? Now we'll go back to the beginning. Pope Leo XIII, Arcanum, the encyclical, promulgated February 10th, 1880. The wife, the main takeaway here is the wife must obey her husband. The mutual duties of husband and wife have been defined and their several rights accurately established. They are bound, namely, to have such feelings for one another as to cherish always very great mutual love, to be ever faithful to their marital vow, and to give one another an unfailing and unselfish help. The husband is the chief of the family and the head of the wife. The woman, because she is flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, see that connection back to, back to Genesis chapter 2, 2 or 3. Genesis chapter 2, because she is flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, must be subject to her husband and obey him, not indeed as a servant, but as a companion, so that her obedience shall be wanting in neither honor nor dignity. So she's distinguished from servants. In other places, popes will distinguish her from a kid. She's still a grown adult, and she is still obedient. What does that mean? She must do what her husband says but more like a companion. And it will not want an honor or dignity because she's a grown woman. Unlike servants, unlike children. Since the husband represents Christ and since the wife represents the church, let there always be both in him who commands and in her who obeys, no mutual submission there, 
a heaven-born love guiding both in their respective duties. For the husband is the head of the wife and Christ is the head of the church, as Christ is the head of the church. Therefore, as the, Christ is, as the church is subject to Christ, let also wives be subject to their husbands in all things. Pope Leo repeats this. There is no doubt here. I defy anyone out there, America Magazine, where Peter is, I, I don't know the other one. <laughs> what are the other, in an American magazine or where Peter is, or any of the goofy Catholic left sites, watch this whole video and then come on and, and tell, me, tell me that this can change. I've debated Trent Horn on it. I didn't debate Matt Fratt on it, but went on his show with a very different point of view. This one, the Catholic one, and it, it clearly uh, upset the apple cart. Number two, Leo Thirteenth, also in Arcanum from the same date. The authority of the father over his family, in papal quote number two. Not only, in strict truth, was marriage instituted for the propagation of the human race, but also that the lives of husbands and wives might be made better and happier. Okay? Better and happier. This comes about in many ways. By the lightening of each other's burdens through mutual help. Right? We, we do that, right, Steffi? Steffi's a great, great helper. Amazing helper. I couldn't do what I do without her. I, so many husbands say that, but then they're the ones pulling all their own buttons and pushing all... I, I literally don't know how to work stuff without Steph. So husbands will be, me too, man. But I mean, most of them, their wives aren't sitting right here doing everything for them. By constant and faithful love, Steph. By having all their possessions in common, Steph. I, I know some marital couples that have different bank accounts, I'm embarrassed to say. And by the heavenly grace which flows from the sacrament. Marriage also can do much for the good of the families, for so long as it is comfortable in nature in accordance with the counsels of God, it has powers to strengthen union of heart in the parents, to secure the holy education of children, to temper the authority of the father by the example of divine authority. That means, yes, you have all the power, men, but be nice. To render children obedient to their parents and servants Obedient to their masters. Wow. Wow. Now, these two quotes from Arcanum together stand in stark contradistinction to, in two days' time, the quote that my young friend, Lauren, is going to produce from, I'm sorry to say, Focus, which works with college people a lot. She was red-pilling a group of young women. We're going to talk about it with her. About... Marital relations, she's a young married on a college campus as her husband finishes his schooling about wifely obedience. It is Christianity. It is the Christian teaching. Even Protestants are really good on this. Catholics are especially weak because of all of the, the conspiracy of silence that I mentioned. And they couldn't believe it because Focus said something like, uh, what, what was the quote? I'll, I'll get to it in two days. Oh, but sinful male dominance. Sinful male dominance they said, was, this can be taken in two ways, the partitive way or the whole way. But they said that sinful male dominance is an errant interpretation of Ephesians 5. Well, male dominance, yes, is clear from everything I've read. I guess there's a sinful version of the man's beating the hell out of his wife and kids and running around on them. But male dominance should be the way, just do it in a non-sinful way. 
But male dominance itself is the way. Just do it in the sinless way. Papal quote number three, also Pope Leo. This is from Sapientiae Christiane, promulgated January 10th, 1890. The husband is the head of his family is the main takeaway. This is a suitable moment for us to exhort, especially heads of families, to govern their households, he says toward the beginning. Pope Leo XIII, quote number four, from Rerum Novarum, famous, 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 from uh, May the 15th, 1891. He will underscore that the husband is the head of the wife. This is quote number four from the Pope's. Secondly, the mutual duties of husband and wife have been defined and their several rights accurately established. Now, this was established at the Catechism of Trent, after the Council of Trent. That's what he's referring to. They are bound, namely, to have such feelings for one another as to cherish always very great mutual love, to be ever faithful to their marriage vow, to give to one another an unfailing and unselfish help. The husband is the chief of the family and the head of his wife. No dispute here. He's the total boss. The woman, because she is flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, must be subject to her husband and obey him, not indeed as a servant, he repeats from his earlier letter, but as a companion, so that her obedience shall be wanting in neither honor nor dignity, since the husband represents Christ and since the wife represents the church, let there always be both in him who commands and in her who obeys a heaven-born love guiding both in their respective duties. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so also let wives be subject to him, to husbands in all things. Now he's quoting himself here. Next we come to Pio X, Pius X, addressed to the delegation of the Union of Italian Catholic Ladies. Listen to what he says. This is on April 21st, 1909. These are some 20th century popes. So now we come to... Um, would you look up the end of Pope Leo's reign? Because I'm always saying six 20th century popes exhorted wives to be utterly subject to their husbands. I'm wondering if we can Pope count Pope Leo the uh, Thirteenth before Pius the Tenth. So Pius the Tenth, the address to the delegation of Union of Italian. 1878 to 1903. Yeah. So Pope Leo the Thirteenth is a 20th century pope. He's our first. 20th century pope that utterly grinds the claims of feminisms under heel, right? And so now we're on to the second 20th century pope, Pius X, in his address to the delegation of the Union of Italian Catholic Ladies on April 21st, 1909. Women are utterly dependent on men. This is what he's going to say. When I look up to give commentary, I, that means I'm not reading. After creating man, God created woman and determined her mission, namely that of being man's companion, helpmate, and consolation. It is a mistake, therefore, to maintain that a woman's rights are the same as man's. Holy cow! Of course, that's obvious. Women in war or parliament are outside their proper sphere. What? 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 Now, my text group, my text group. Um, so this is what we were talking about the other day. That based speech by the new Italian prime minister. That base speech by the new Italian prime minister, I said, that's great that she's saying true things about transsexualism. But feminism is way worse than the LGBTQ plus stuff because it affects 499 out of 500. So that's great, she says, we have our identity and family. But where are your kids and your husband right now? Who's at home beautifying it? Who's at your house, I should say, beautifying it and making it a home? Let me repeat, Pius X. 
Women in war or parliament are outside their proper sphere, and their position there would be the desperation and ruin of society. Women, created as man's companion, must so remain under the power of love and affection, but always under his power. How mistaken, therefore, is that misguided feminism which seeks to correct God's work. It is like a mechanic trying to correct the signs and movements of the universe. Scripture, and especially the three epistles of St. Paul, emphasize women's dependence on man, her love and assistance, but not her slavery to him. Do Do you understand this? I mean, like... I literally, look, I don't blame you, but I had friends, you know, conservative text group, like making jokes about what I'm saying. And it's like, well, everyone knows Pius X is is based. I'm going to take a picture of this for you guys right now because I'm not going to. Frame it and put it in our living room. (laughs) Because I'm not going to play this video. This is a pre recorded video, whether you knew it or not now. So I'm going to, I'm taking a picture of this and I'm going to send it right now to the group. And um, you guys, can, you guys can, can deal with this, friends. Papal quote number six. Pius X again in the Oath Against Modernism. He's going to say that dogma can't be tailored to meet the preferences of the day. Now, this, he does not mention feminism here, but I want to make it clear after the scripture and only a fraction of the papal quotations against feminism, that this is precisely what the church is doing now in its low-key apostasy, maybe high-key apostasy. It is tailoring dogma to meet the preferences of the day. Clear, clear, clear. Scriptural teaching, papal teaching, magisterial teaching to meet the preferences of the day, which are feminists. Much more than they are LGBTQ+. They're feminist. And that's why we got into this discussion of that base speech by the Italian Prime Minister who ought to be at home. I firmly embrace and accept each and every definition that has been set forth and declared by the unerring teaching authority of the Church, especially those principal truths which are directly opposed to the errors of this day. I entirely reject the heretical misrepresentation that dogmas evolve and change from one meaning to another, different from the one which the Church held previously. Pius X says, I firmly hold then and shall hold to my dying breath the belief of the fathers in the charism of truth, which certainly is, was, and always will be in the succession of the episcopacy from the apostles. The purpose of this then is not that dogma may be tailored according to what seems better and more suited to the culture of each age, rather that the absolute and immutable truth preached by the apostles from the beginning may never be believed to be different, may never be understood in any other way. Now, I was telling Trent Horn this. I wasn't specifying what level of magisteria each of these papal quotes, patristic quote, which I'm going to read, scholastic quote, and scripture there are, but the scripture is inerrant, friendo. So I think it was Michael Lofton mentioned this on his show. I wasn't doing that. That wasn't the goal. I don't, I don't care what level of magisterium this is. The point is the scriptures can't be changed to meet the feminism of the day. And there are 20 scripture quotes, and they are all slam dunks. Papal quote number seven, Benedict 15. That means we are now in 20th century Pope number three, who grinds feminism under heel. The reason I'm saying 20th century Popes is because um, the soft feminists, 
Matt Frad, Trent Horn kind of insinuated this, not, not that they're full feminists, but the soft feminists, whether they are counted among their number or not, there are a lot of right-wing Catholic people that are soft feminists. Say, oh, well, all, all of that got kind of glossed over and changed intentionally by 20th century popes. No. This is, these are all 20th century popes. This is number three now, Benedict XV. Natalis Trecentesimi. December 27, 1917. Women should not abandon their duties at home is the point of this. With the decline in religion, cultured women have lost their sense of shame along with their piety. <laughs> Many, in order to take up occupations ill-befitting their sex, took to imitating men. Others abandoned the duties of the housewife for which they were fashioned to cast themselves recklessly into the current of life. Women aren't allowed to work. Benedict XV again. This is quote number eight from the popes. Women's mission in modern society. This is in papal pronouncements, numbers 131 and 132. Women's duty is to her home and family. The changed conditions of the time have conferred upon women functions and rights which were not allowed in her, her in former times. But no change in the opinions of men, no novelty of circumstances and events, will ever remove woman, conscious of her mission, from her natural center, which is the family. Never. This is Benedict XV saying she can never be removed from her context, which is the family. At the domestic hearth, she is queen. Hence it is... It may be justly said that the changed condition of the times have enlarged the field of women's activity. An apostolate of woman in the world has succeeded that more intimate and restricted action which she formerly exercised within the domestic walls. But this apostolate must be carried out in such a manner as to make it evident that woman, both outside and within the home, shall not forget that it is her duty, even today, to consecrate, to consecrate her principal cares to the family. Now, the seeming exception here involves... Uh, single women, even single women, in other words, must be preparing for a life assuming that they're going to get married within the family. A woman who is married just has her work cut out for her. It's the home. But a single woman who is allowed outside work, who must work outside the home, must, Benedict XV is saying, get ready for work inside the home eventually. Now we come to 20th century Pope number quattro, number four, Pope Pius XI, in Casti Canubi E, December 31st, 1930. He's going to repeat that man is the head, woman is the heart. This subjection, however, does not deny or take away the liberty which fully belongs to the woman, both in view of her dignity as a human and in view of her most noble office as wife and mother and companion. Nor does it bid her obey the, her husband's every request. It is not in harmony with recto ratio or with the dignity due to wife. That means if he's, taken, you know, if he's ordering her to do something which contradicts Catholic teaching. Nor, in fine, does it imply the wife should be put on a level with those persons who in law are called minors. Remember, she's not a servant. Uh, Leo XIII said she's also not a minor now, Pius XI will say. To whom it is not customary to allow free exercise of the rights on account of their lack of mature judgment or of their ignorance in, of human affairs. But, Pius XI says, it forbids that exaggerated liberty which cares not for the good of the family. It forbids that in this body, which is the family, the heart be separated from the head, the woman be separated from the man, to the great detriment of the whole body and the proximate danger of ruin. 
For if the man is the head, the woman is the heart, and as he occupies the chief place in ruling, so she may and ought to claim for herself the chief place in love. Papal quote number 10, also from Pius XI. This is also from Casti Canubii, December 31st, 1930. The great harm to the home when women seeks work outside the home. If, however, for this purpose, private resources do not suffice, it is the duty of the public authority to supply for the insufficient forces of individual effort, particularly, particularly in a matter which is of such importance to the commonweal, touching as it does the maintenance of the family and married people. If families, particularly those in which there are many children, have not suitable dwellings, if the husband cannot find employment and means of livelihood, if the necessities of life cannot be purchased except at exorbitant prices, if even the mother of the family, to the great harm of the home, is compelled to go forth and seek a living by her own labor, if she too in the ordinary or even extraordinary labors of childbirth is deprived of proper food, medicine, and the assistance of a skilled physician, it is patent to all to what an extent married people may lose heart, and how home life and the observance of God's commands are rendered difficult for them. Indeed, it is obvious how great a peril can arise to the public security and to the welfare and the very life of civil society itself when such men are reduced to that condition of desperation that, having nothing which they fear to lose, they are emboldened to hope for the chance advantage from the upheaval of the state and of established order. Women can't seek work outside the home. This is why um, Pius XI is saying that even the state should get involved basically before a woman should get the second job, the second income. If a, man, if a man can't provide, then Pius XI, who is a minimalist governmentally, is, is insinuating even the state should get involved because the worst evil is when a woman works. Number 11, Pius XI in the encyclical Casti Canubii also, women's false liberty and emancipation. He says, this, however, is not the true emancipation of woman nor that rational and exalted liberty which belongs to the noble office of a Christian woman and wife, it is rather the debasing of the womanly character and the dignity of motherhood, and indeed of the whole family, as a result of which the husband suffers the loss of his wife, the children of their mother, and the home and the whole family of an ever-watchful guardian, the wife. More than this, the false liberty and unnatural equality with the husband, unnatural equality with the husband, is to the detriment of the woman herself. For if the woman descends from her truly regal throne, the home, to which she has been raised within the walls of the home by the means of the gospel, she will soon be reduced to the old state of slavery, this means in the workforce, if not in appearance, certainly in reality. Uh, is that a quote from Pius XI? Or did, did, did some Gordon add that? I don't know. It, it might, that might not be Pius. So, if she will soon be reduced to the old state of slavery, I'm going to re, um, expunge that, that parenthetical, and become as amongst the pagans the more the mere instrument of man. I'm not sure what that is. I'm going to check that. Okay, now he's going to go on to say much more uh, in a paragraph that's, that's of value in Cassi Canubii, but we've got to move along here. Still on 20th century Pope IV that just destroys feminism. This is quote 12 from Lux, uh, Lux Veritatis, 
Christmas of 1931, the dignity of motherhood and obedience. He says, Our predecessor, Leo XIII of happy memory, says, Fathers of families indeed have in Joseph a glorious pattern of vigilance and paternal prudence. Mothers have in the most holy virgin mother of God a remarkable example of love and modesty and submission of mind and of perfect faith. But the children of a family have in Jesus, who is subject to them, a divine model of obedience, which they may admire and worship and imitate. But in a more special manner, it is fitting that those mothers of this our age, who being weary, whether of offspring or of the marriage bond, have the office they have undertaken, degraded, and neglected, may look up to Mary and meditate intently on her, who has raised this grave duty of motherhood to such high nobility. For in this way there is hope that they may be led, by the great help and grace of the Heavenly Queen, to feel shame for the dishonor done to the great sacrament of matrimony. What do you think he's talking about, folks? Feminism. And may happily be stirred up to follow after the wondrous praise of her virtues by every effort in their power. Okay. Now we get to the famous Pius XI document, Quadragesimo Anno, May 15, 1931. He's going to say it's an intolerable abuse for mothers to work outside the home. Listen to this. An intolerable abuse for mothers to work outside the home. An intolerable abuse for mothers to work outside the home. In the first place, the worker must be paid a wage sufficient to support him and his family. That the rest of the family should also contribute to the common support according to the capacity of each is certainly right, as can be observed especially in the families of farmers. So, in the curtilage of the home, that means the area surrounding it, wives and children are allowed to work, as is observed, especially in the families of farmers, but also in the families of many craftsmen and small shopkeepers. If the wife or even the kids help around a shop, that's, that's perfectly fine. It can be like a family there. But to abuse the years of childhood and the limited strength of women is grossly wrong. So, he's, in this way, he is... Uh, Pius XI, relating women and children. Not because women are at that lower level, but because none of them should be working except for helping the father at his job if he has a certain kind of job, like a shop or a farm. Mothers concentrating on household duties should work primarily in the home or in its immediate vicinity. That means the curtilage, what is called the curtilage at law. It's an intolerable abuse and to be abolished at all cost. For mothers on account of the father's low wage to be forced to engage in gainful occupations outside the home to the neglect of the proper cares and duties, especially the training of children. Not only the training of children. See, even a lot of Catholic right-wingers say, oh, my wife will work until we have our first kid. No. The care of the home and the care of the yard, the, uh, you know, the outside gardening, care beautifying the home, preparing it, cleaning it. The care of the husband should be enough to occupy a wife even before her first kid. Comes directly from Pius XI. He says, Every effort must be therefore made that fathers of families receive a wage large enough to meet ordinary family needs adequately. Pay your workers more, Catholic employers. They should not have to have working wives. It's an intolerable abuse to be abolished at all costs. But if this cannot always be done under existing circumstances, should wives get a job? No. 
Social justice demands that changes be introduced as soon as possible, whereby such a wage will be assured to every adult working man. Full stop. Next comes Pius XI. We're not going to have time for the... We are not going to have time for the patristics and the scholastics. We'll have to add that. Just list them at the end without the quotes. All right. Yeah, that's good. 14, still Pius XI, from Divini Redemptoris, March 19, 1937. Woman is bound to the family and the home is the takeaway. Communism is particularly characterized by the rejection of any link that binds woman to the family and the home, and her emancipation is proclaimed as a basic principle. She is withdrawn from the family and the care of her children to be thrust instead into public life and collective production under the same conditions as man. See that? Feminism. Same conditions as man. See that? What we have now. The heirs of Russia. Women are in the workplace. Last sentence. The care of the home and children then devolves upon the collectivity. See, this communism, this Russian Marxism, which foists the care of the home and children upon the collectivity, this is feminism. And note the and here. The care of home and children. I'm again addressing the mostly right-wing Catholics that say, my wife won't work after she has kids. No, before you have kids, she has the home to care for and a husband to care for. Women are only allowed to work outside the home before they're married. Once you're married, it's done. This is Catholic teaching. It's very clear. Number 15. Now we get to 20th century Pope number Cinque, five. Pius Twelfth. Women's duties in social and political life in papal pronouncements, numbers 43 to 44. Work away from the home degrades women's true dignity. Has a woman's position been thereby improved, he asks? Equality of rights with man brought with it her abandonment of the home where she reigned as queen, quoting his predecessor, Pius XI, and her subjection to the same work strain and working hours. It entails depreciation of her true dignity and solid foundation of all her rights, which is her characteristic female role in the home. I added that. And the intimate coordination of the two sexes. The end intended by God for the good of all human society, especially for the family, is lost sight of. This is society. Feminism ruined everything, not LGBTQ. Right? Feminism is the original transgender. Women can be men. Women can act like men. Transgender says they can be men. Who cares? The worst part is saying all women can act like all men. And homosexualism is just saying a woman can act like a man in the bedroom and vice versa. The end intended by God for the good of all human society, especially for the family, is lost sight of. In concessions made to woman, one can easily see not respect for her dignity or her mission, but an attempt to foster the economic and military power of the totalitarian state to which all must inexorably be subordinated. To restore her as far as possible to the honor of the woman's and mother's place in the home, that is the watchword one hears now from many quarters, like here, rules for retrogrades, Steph and Tim Gordon, <coughs> like a cry of alarm, as if the world were awakening, terrified by the fruits of material and scientific progress, of which it before was so proud. Does that not, does that not sound retrograde, <laughs> Père Jorvins? Pius XII, still from women's duties in social and political life, in papal pronouncements. Mm-hmm. 
He's going to say women's abandonment of the home leads to misery. Big takeaway principle. My throat's getting dry. We see a woman, he writes, who in order to augment her husband's earning, betakes herself also to a factory, leaving her house abandoned during her absence. The house, untidy and small, perhaps before, becomes even more miserable for lack of care. Members of the family work separately in four quarters of the city and with different working hours. Scarcely ever do they find themselves together for dinner or rest after work, still less for prayer in common. What is left of family life and what attractions can it offer to children? You see, without offering attractions, the family life, To young children, they're not going to want to grow up and get married. That's what happened to our generation. The boomers had working wives and mothers. Gen X had working wives and mothers. What has that done to the prospect of marriage? For the children of those households, the younger generation, it made it look miserable. Griping, unhappy, grumpy, shrill, boss-commandeering roles for women women who are their mothers who didn't raise them properly, who left the home. So now those young men grow up and they say, I don't want to get married. I'm going to be a man going my own way. Men going their own way is what MGTOW was produced by. Number 17, still Pius XI. This is Pope V. <laughs> uh, Pope V in the 20th century. When I debated Trent Horn, he said, oh, that's just erstwhile stuff, the no, the no working women stuff. That's all the way from the Catechism of Trent. Okay. Well, here are five, it's about to be six 20th century popes saying, nope, whatever the Catechism of Trent said about working wives, that's what we say. <coughs> it's just wrong. Um, number 17, Pope Pius XII, women's duties in social and political life in papal pronouncements one more time. Different paragraph, women's wage is easily, quote-unquote, swallowed up. This is a practical admonition. As to the working classes forced to earn daily bread, a woman might, if she reflected, realize that not rarely the supplementary wage which she earns by working outside the house is easily swallowed up by the other expenses or even by waste, which is ruinous to the family budget. I wrote on this in the new book, Don't Go to College. Most women find their secondary income that they're being essentially pimped out for, they're finding it swallowed up by childcare. So they're just swapping it out. It's the worst of both worlds. Pius XII says the same thing. He continues, It is clear that women's task thus understood cannot be improvised. Motherly instinct is in her a human instinct, not determined by nature, down to the details of its application. It is directed by free will, and this in turn is guided by intellect. Hence comes its moral value and its dignity, but also imperfection, which must be compensated for and redeemed by education. You see how it's easy, given my position as the author of this book and the help help editor of this one, where we gathered all these quotes, and I'm not even near done yet, I'm not even halfway done, to get cocky when I talk to Trent Horn or Matt Fratt or anybody about this. It's such a slam dunk. I defy anyone out there who thinks there can be a Christian, Catholic version of working women, women are equal with their husband in rank, feminism, to to, to debate me on this. 
Now we come to Pope of the 20th century, number six, destroying feminism. This is John the 23rd, Vatican II, John the 23rd, in the encyclical Pacem in Terris, promulgated on April the 11th, 1963. Listen to what he says about single household income. The worker is likewise entitled to a wage that is determined in accordance with the precepts of justice. This needs stressing, he writes. The amount a worker receives must be sufficient in proportion to available funds to allow him and his family a standard of living consistent with human dignity. This is very specific, friends. He's repeating Pius XI's exhortation that employers must pay men, not women, men, enough for them, the men, and their individual respective families. The amount a worker receives, I repeat, must be sufficient in proportion to available funds to allow him and his family a standard of living consistent with human dignity. It's Pope number six now saying feminism is bad. Women can't be in the workplace. Here's the Second Vatican Council. This, I'm counting this as papal pronouncement number 19. Vatican II, in Gaudium et Space, promulgated by Pope Paul VI. So this, this counts as Paul VI, and, and he has at least one anyway. So this is Pope of the 20th century number seven. I thought there were only six. Children need the care of their mother at home is what the Vatican II document's going to say. You didn't know Vatican II documents were anti-feminist. The family is a kind of school of deeper humanity, but if it is to achieve the full flowering of its life and mission, it needs the kindly communion of minds and the joint deliberation of spouses, <coughs> as well as the painstaking cooperation of parents in the education of their children. The active presence of the father is highly beneficial to their formation. The children, especially the younger among them, need the care of their mother at home. Did you know 72% of all mothers at, what, with, with kids under two or three, I forget what it is. I'm, I'm quoting from memory. Work. They have 72, almost three out of four work with kids under three. They need the care of their mother at home, says Gaudium at space. This domestic role of hers, the mother, must be safely preserved, though the legitimate social progress of women should, be, should not be underrated on that account. The legitimate social progress of women is therefore contrasted with illegitimate social progress of women, which is seeing women in the workplace. Paul VI, Vatican II, contrasts legitimate social progress of women, whatever that is, he doesn't specify. Whether or not that includes women's voting rights, some people might think that's legitimate, some people might think it's illegitimate. But he contrasts it with illegitimate, false progress of women, which is them getting jobs. Clear. So we're still on Pope of the 20th century, number seven, Pope Paul VI, this is in Inter Insignores, uh, promulgated on October the 15th, 1976. Okay, October the 15th, 1976. Distinction between man and woman. 
Could one say that since Christ is now in the heavenly condition, from now on it is a matter of indifference whether he be represented by a man or a woman? Since at the resurrection, men and women do not marry? But this text does not mean that the distinction between man and woman, insofar as it determines the proper identity to the person, is suppressed by the glorified state. What holds for us also holds for Christ. It is indeed evident that in human beings, the difference between the difference of sex exercises an important influence. Much deeper than, for example, ethnic differences. Man and woman are much more important in their disparities than ethnic differences. The latter do not affect the human person as, ultimate, as intimately as the difference of sex, which is directly ordained both for the communion of persons and for the generation of human beings. In biblical revelation, this difference is the effect of God's will from the beginning. And then he quotes Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the first book of the Bible, first chapter of the first book of the Bible. Male and female, he created them. 21, now we get to John Paul II, eighth pope of the 20th century. In his letter to families, he says, mothering is a greater calling than a profession. He says, the toil of a woman who having given birth to a child, nourishes and cares for that child and devotes herself to its upbringing, particularly in the early years, is so great as to be comparable to any professional work. Now, what is Pope John Paul II saying? It's not totally clear. We are basically at Pope number 264. He's not perfectly clear about, in, in ways that all previous popes were. He's the 8th 20th century pope, but he does not say that women can go get jobs outside the home. He never says that. Contrary to what you're going to be told by whoever, the mainstream church may be focused. May be focused, it would be implied. The toil of a woman having given birth to a child is so great as to be comparable to any professional. That's a dumb quote, but it at least makes our point. It's not comparable to any professional work. It should be way above any professional work. But he's still making the point that women shouldn't have to leave the home. Now, in Laborum Exorcens, this is papal quote number 22. He's our 8th 20th century pope that says it. Promulgated September 14, 1981, shortly after yours truly was born. Mothers should not abandon the home to take up paid work, he's going to say, he's going to imply. Experience confirms that there must be a social reevaluation of the mother's role, of the toil connected with it, and of the need that children have for care, love, and affection in order that they may develop into responsible, morally and religiously mature, and psychologically stable persons. What he says next is important because... He's writing 11 years after women left the home. They started leaving the home in 1970. And because he's the Pope, Pope number eight, who combats feminism in the 20th century, that has often falsely ascribed the view that women should get jobs. And he's also the, the one who, who has rightly ascribed this false position of mutual submission. It will redound to the credit of society. This is the quote I read first in the papal section. To make it possible for a mother, without inhibiting her freedom, without psychological or practical discrimination, without penalizing her as compared with other women, to devote herself to taking care of her children and educating them in accordance with their needs, which vary with age. Having to abandon these tasks in order to take up paid work outside the home is wrong from the point of view of the good of society and of the family. 
when it contradicts or hinders these primary goals of the mission of a mother. So he's not... Pope John Paul II gets waffly, squishy, wants to please everyone, but he's not contradicting what Scripture says, what all the other popes have ever said. No pope ever said a woman should get a job. A married woman should get a job. They all say married women should not get jobs. JP2 agrees. Quote number three, 23. John Paul II says in Centesimus Annus, number eight, he backs up Rerum Novarum, 100 years later. He backs up Quadragesimo Anno, 60 years after it, by saying, a workman's wages should be sufficient to enable him to support himself, his wife, and his children. Boom. That's John Paul II, who the feminists lie and slant and cheat and steal and squish and fudge to make it sound like he's saying women should have jobs. I'll repeat it. A workman's wages should be sufficient to enable him to support himself, his wife, and his children. If through necessity or fear of a worse evil, the workman accepts harder conditions because an employer or contractor will afford no better, he is made the victim of force and injustice. This strongly implies that if a woman winds up in the workplace, then it is a kind of victimhood of force and injustice, and it's been called by two or three other popes a grave evil if she's forced to do it. Now, if she chooses to do it, she's responsible for the grave evil. That's a mortal sin if it's subjectively granted, assented to. Quote 24, Pope John Paul II, also in um, Laborum Exorcens. We're back to that. This is number 19. Again, there should be a single salary for the head of the family is the, the main point. Such remuneration can be given either through what is called a family wage, that is a single salary given to the head of the family for his work, his work, sufficient for the needs of a family without the other spouse having to take up gainful employment outside the home. Holy cow, I forgot he was this specific. Or through other social measures such as family allowances or grants to mothers devoting themselves exclusively to their families. Still means women don't work. These grants should correspond to the actual needs, that is to the number of dependents for as long as they are not in a position to assume proper responsibility for their own lives. To get any squishier on this, all the other popes and all the scripture teach that a wife should not be working outside the home. John Paul II is now sort of trying to change it to a mother. But all the other popes who are binding on us teach a wife should not be outside the home. Number 25, John Paul II's remarks during a visit to Limerick, Ireland in 1979. One of the new things I found for the new Ask Your Husband. Yeah, listen to this. In the second edition of Ask Your Husband, Steph added this. Do not think that anything you do in life is more important than to be a good Christian father or mother. May Irish mothers, young women and girls, not listen to those who tell them that working at a secular job, succeeding in a secular profession, is more important than the vocation of giving life and caring for this life as a mother. Now, I wish he could say it stronger. This is a big problem with John Paul II. He's very weak on the, the leftists. But at least he's saying it. The future of the church, the future of humanity, depend in great part on parents and on the family life and that they build in their homes. Now, this is good. 
pushes back on the feminists. It's not as good as what he says in Laborum Exorcins, but it's a little more. And again, he should say, may Irish wives not work, ever. Which is implied by Laborum Exorcins and, all, and, and explicitly stated by Scripture and all the other popes. You see how Pope John Paul II is a little squishy? And this is what radicals do. The feminists are radical Marxists. They take a little squish and they try to make a molehill out of it. So it's that most of you are brainwashed in this area. You think like women can just work. Married women can work outside the home. They can't. Single women can. Married women can work inside the home. Number 26. We'll work inside the home right now. Taking place with this baby. Pope John Paul II says in a February 1989 letter to the bishops of the United States that radical, more or less, that radical feminism degrades the dignity of women. He says, however, a radical feminism which seeks the rights of women by attacking and denying fundamental, clear, and constant moral teachings does not reflect or promote the full reality and true dignity of women who have not only a temporal worth, but also an eternal destiny in the divine plan. Mary, mother of Jesus, mother of the church, woman par excellence. Woman par excellence, meaning she, you must do what she does or try, embodies that radical dignity of women. Sorry, battery went out. Let me fix that. <laughs> I'll go on. Uh, number 27, John Paul II's 1995 letter to Mrs. Gertrude Mongella, Secretary General of the Fourth World Conference on Women of the United Nations. So, brother. Um, now, again, JP2 is getting weaker as we go along, but we're just showing that JP2 is not contradicting doctrine. He's here going to basically just say women should not feel guilty for remaining at home. I don't even know if it's worth reading all the way. But it's, it's the he's not as strong as scripture and tradition, but he doesn't have to be. He's not allowed to contradict it in the first place. But if you were seeking to contradict it, it would have to be explicit. He says, No response to women's issues can ignore women's role in the family or take lightly the fact that every new life is totally entrusted to the protection and care of the woman carrying it in her womb. Right? It's not a man's job. It's a woman's job. In order to respect this natural order of things, it is necessary to counter the misconception that the role of motherhood is oppressive to women and that commitment to her family, particularly her children, prevents a woman from reaching personal fulfillment and women as a whole from having an influence in society. See, he's always, there's always a comma clause with, well, yeah, they're going to be less influential directly on society, but indirectly through the children they raise. That's what he means. They will still influence society. Now, Pope, um, is Benedict really saying anything of worth here? I don't know if this is worth our time. Benedict will now say that there are only two sexes, I don't really care about that so much. Who cares, right? In the address to the Roman Curia, Francis will repeat that and we'll go back and forth on it. Um, uh, let's see if we have a, an instant, if you look at number 29. 28 and 30 are Francis and, and Benedict pushing back against transgenderism. That doesn't interest me at all. Um, number 29, though, is Benedict Sixteenth, the address to the Pontifical Council. Let's see what he says. Let's see if he's if he counts as Pope number nine of the twentieth century. Well, I guess he'd be twenty first century. So there are eight in the twentieth century. But let's see if he's Pope number nine since the twentieth century to push back on feminism. I don't know this quote. This is a Steph quote. The Christian vision of man is in fact a great yes to the dignity of persons called to an intimate filial community of humility and faithfulness. 
The human being is not a self-sufficient individual nor an uh, anonymous element in the group. Rather, he is a unique and unrepeatable person, intrinsically ordered to relationships and sociability. Thus, the church reaffirms a great yes to the dignity and beauty of marriage as an expression of the faithful and generous bond between man and woman, and her no to gender philosophies. Oh, this is pretty early for this, 2013. Because the reciprocity between male and female is an expression of the beauty of nature willed by the creation. It's got implicit in it when he says reciprocity between male and female. All the stuff we said before, and he's not trying to overthrow it, but I, I don't know. This is no great win. I don't really care what Francis says anyway. <laughs> so you get 30, 31, 32. Francis has at times pushed back rather rigorously on gender theory, but a lot of, remember, the feminists do too. They hate the gender theorists, the trannies, because of their, um, because of the, the transgenders are proving how bad women are at sports and how, how unmanlike women can be through, through the accidental happenstance of competing, of against, competing men. against men. Thank you. Okay, so that's that's it, man. I mean, so if you discount all that, it's not quite 32 instances of papal. I think I skipped four or five, so call it 27 or 28, along with 20 scriptures. Um, now, I have next, and you can email me this and uh, email me for this, requesting it, and get this PDF starting later on. Well, don't, don't email me yet. We got to touch this thing up a bit. But we've got the patristics... And the doctors versus feminism, that includes Polycarp, Jerome, St. Augustine, lots of St. Augustine. Jerome says, as long as a woman is for birth and children, she is different from a man, his body is from soul. Who else do we have? Jerome again. Chrysostom. I have Chrysostom all up and down the case for patriarchy. You have Chrysostom as well. Oh man, so much where he just, there and Chrysostom and Jerome in particular just qu quote from the St. Paul passages I read and they say stuff so based and so they would definitely be called the biggest misogynists. Jerome and Chrysostom, great, great uh, doctors of the church, right? I believe Chrysostom is as well. Two of the earliest and best. East and West. And they're saying stuff way more quote-unquote misogynistic than even St. Paul or Thomas. Then you get so much from Chrysostom, Jerome. Clement of Alexandria, woman is to occupy herself as a housekeeper and helpmate to her husband. He makes that clear. That's the main takeaway. Jerome, the wife is subject to her husband is Christ to church. Chrysostom, women be the keepers of the home. These are the main ideas. I'm not reading you the whole thing. Woman is meant for procreation, says St. Augustine. Polycarp, wives ought to tenderly love their husbands. This is their main task. These are the main ideas. Chrysostom, so women should yield to their husbands. Jerome, women was created for birth and children. Again, it's hilarious, actually. So, so there are, what, like 15 of those? 15 of these. Clement of Alexandria, the woman is to occupy herself as housekeeper and helpmate. Sounds really good. Scholastics, scholastics, you got Aquinas. Who else do we have in here? Just tons of Aquinas writing about the patristics, writing about the scripture. Lombard. Got Peter Lombard. Eve was formed from Adam's side. And this means, I did this translation on a test in my Latin. This means, theologically, there is a hierarchy. Thomas Aquinas 
comments on the same passage in uh, Genesis, it just to the same effect. Um, commentary on the letters to Corinthians, one of the passages, he just says, it means what you think it means. Commentary on the um, Colossians, Thess- Thessalonians, Timothy and Titus, he says, well, Aristotle says that the dominion of women is the death of a family, um, sorry, that the dominion of women is the death of family as tyrants of a commonwealth. When women are put in charge, it's the death of the family and the death of the commonwealth. Let me close by reading to you the Catechism of Trent, which is the only catech. There are only two universal catechisms in the history of the church, the recent one from the 90s and the one from Trent. And um, the 90s one says nothing of the duties of men and women. So let me, let me close so with the that. the older one stands. The older one stands. There's, Steph also did short replies to common feminist objections. Guys in my group chat, text chat, a bunch of your questions were, were I'm sorry to say, kind of replies to these common feminist objections. No offense. It's kind of like you never want to find yourself in the objections in Aquinas' summas. It means you're asking a question everybody else did that he's going to shellac. Um, but here's the big thing. The duties of wives from the catechism, the one teaching ever, definitively in any universal catechism. Ready? Then, this, then we're going we're gonna to cut out. The duties of a wife are thus subbed up by the prince of the apostles, Paul. Let wives be subject to their husbands, that if any believe not the word, there may be one without the word by the conversation of the wives, Considering your chaste conversation with fear, let not their adorning be the outward plating of the hair or the wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel, but the hidden man of the heart in the incorruptibility of a quiet and meek spirit, which is rich in the sight of God. For after this manner, heretofore the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now we get to the duties themselves. To train their children in the practice of virtue and to pay particular attention to their domestic concerns should also be a special objects of their attention. You think that's good? Wait. The wife should love to remain at home unless compelled by necessity to go out. This means you're not allowed to get an elective job. Why? Because the catechism does not tell you in many instances what kind of attitude you ought to have, what you ought to love and what you ought to hate. Love, virtue, hate, vice. That's basically the only time. Love God, hate the devil. Hate any rejection of God. Well, it's telling wives what they ought to love, to stay at home unless necessity brings you out. That sounds like grave matter talk. Can you believe this? Uh, Unless compelled by necessity to go out. She should never presume to leave home without her husband's consent. When I debated Trent Horn, he was making fun of me for reading the catechism. I don't know. Um, again, in this conjugal union chiefly consists, let wives never forget that next to God they are to love their husbands, to esteem them above all others, yielding to them in things not inconsistent with Christian piety, a willing and ready obedience. So there's that papal teaching. It adds a little bit of gloss on what St. Paul says in the Bible time and again, wives must submit to their husband in all things, unless it's a, uh, their husbands are commanding them to mortal sin, a clear mortal sin. But if it's a, if it's a judgment call, Prudence is the ruler's virtue. If wives say, oh, slippery slope, if I obey you here, it might theoretically lead to some evil. No, you don't get to a disobey there. Only if it's, don't, don't go to church on Sunday. 
or contracept or murder this guy over here. Then a wife can disobey, but no other thing. So let's see what you guys have to say to that. People make the smug remarks and mock, but you can't really mock this. God bless you all. Like and subscribe to this channel. Follow us. That's what we need. We need you to like and subscribe to this channel. Follow me on Twitter. Please, I don't ever mention Twitter. And also, if you want to support this channel, because we really have had, we've been embattled since we came out with these two books. Buy the books on Amazon and support us on Patreon. Support my family, Timothy J. Gordon. We need patrons. In October, we're doing a viewing club for Stranger Things. It's going to be really fun. We're going to meet once a week and we're going to talk about two episodes at a time of Stranger Things. It's going to be a blast. Become a patron today. God bless you all. Deus Volt. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb.